And we're in Exodus 27 today. And I want to tie this back to a uh, one of the verses that Randy mentioned last week. And that was actually out of Exodus 6-7. And he had, he had read this scripture passage. It says, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am uh, the Lord, your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And, and this is what's, this is what's taking place as we read about the tabernacle. The high king of heaven, he came down to earth to live with his people. This was the meaning of the tabernacle in the wilderness. And, and think about it. This was the, the this was the tent that Moses built. And they used this tent, this tabernacle. They tabernacle wandered in the wilderness for 40 years and used this tent. Uh, it continued to be used during the period of the judges uh, as they settled into the land uh, and up until the time of Solomon. The tabernacle was the place to worship God, to enter his presence, to behold his glory. The tabernacle was the avenue through which God encountered his people. And the goal was for God's people, the ones who he had delivered, to enter into a relationship with him and experience his presence. And I've said this before, but to accomplish this purpose, uh, the tabernacle was carefully constructed, carefully designed to reveal deep spiritual truths. The tabernacle was designed to communicate God's supreme holiness as well as his covenant love for his people. Uh, Verna Porthras explains it this way. He, he's taken a look at what the Israelites would have learned as they saw, uh, as they looked at the tabernacle. And he says this, they saw a tent with two inner rooms and a yard outside. In the yard was the Israelite equivalent of a stove, a place where meat could be roasted over a fire. To us, a tent means very little, but the Israelites knew all about tents because they were living in, in tents at the time. Well, God told them to make a tent for him. I mean, think about that. They were living in tents and God says, I want to be with my people, so build a tent for me. And it was a tent where God himself would dwell and meet with the people. The tent had rooms and a yard and a fireplace similar to their living conditions. Yet it was unlike anything of theirs because it was majestic, covered with gold, covered with blue cloth. It was beautiful because of the symmetry, the dimensions, the, the artistry of its construction. You see, God was on the one hand was saying how majestic and holy he is. But he was not going to simply remain in heaven and let Israel go their own way. He would come right down among them. They were living in tents. He would have a tent too, side by side with their tents. And so here's how God told Moses to construct it. This is in Exodus 27. 
you are to construct the altar of acacia wood. The altar must be square, about seven and a half feet long, seven and a half feet wide, four and a half feet tall or high. Make horns for it on the four corners. The horns are to be of one piece. Overlay it with bronze. Make its pots for removing the ashes and shovels and basins and meat forks and fire pans, making all the utensils of bronze. Construct a grate for it of bronze mesh and make four bronze rings on the mesh at its four corners. Set it below under the altar's ledge so that the mesh comes halfway up the altar. Then make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with bronze. And the poles are to be inserted into the rings so that the poles are on two sides of the altar when it is carried. Construct the altar with boards so that it is hollow. They are to make it just as it was shown to you on the mountain. One interesting thing to think of here is that of all the pieces of furniture in the tabernacle that we've discussed, the altar is by far the biggest piece of furniture. You know, seven and a half feet this way, seven and a half feet this way, four and a half feet tall. Now, up to this point, all of the furnishings have been made with gold, but the altar was made with bronze, make wood over overlaid with, with bronze. Now, on the one hand, there's quite practical reasons for this. Bronze is much more durable and heat resistant than, the, for example, than most metals. And it's the right material to have used at that time to make an altar with. But there's also spiritual reasons for it. The altar stood in the courtyard outside of the tent of meeting. You see, all the furnishings so far are inside the tent of meeting, in the place where God was. And thus they, they had to, being covered in gold, it is only fitting for the king of kings to have materials that portray royalty. And so the ark, the table, the lampstand, all golden. Even the clasp that joined the innermost uh, tents and the cloth, the hangings were made of gold. You know, it must have been an amazing sight for a wilderness people like the Israelites to see it. I mean, when the priest entered the holy place, they were probably dazzled to see surroundings fit for a king in the middle of the desert. I, I can just imagine them going back to talking to people. I wish that you could see what's in there. Everything's made of gold. The splendor would continually remind the people that this was the king of kings. And the tabernacle was only gold on the inside where God was. The pedestals that held up the tent posts well, they were made of silver because they rested where heaven and earth meet, where the tabernacle touched the ground. And the courtyard outside the tabernacle where the people first approached God's presence, everything was made of bronze. So you go from bronze to silver to gold. The closer the Israelites got to God, the more precious the metal with gold, of course, being reserved for 
his royal presence. So all the furnishings in the room being covered with gold outside in the courtyard with the altar made of bronze, you know, with a, least, a, a, a less expensive material and common Israelites could enter and worship there. You see, the courtyard was more earthy in character and the relationship between the courtyard and the tent of meeting uh, really suggests to the Israelites, it would have suggested their own earthiness in contrast to God's holy, heavenly character. And all the utensils were also made of bronze. You had the shovels and the pots for removing ashes from the stove. You had bowls for collecting and sprinkling the sacrificial blood. You had long forks for turning the meat over a flame. And this was for the sacrifices that the people and the priest were allowed to eat. You had fire pans for scooping up the hot coals when the tabernacle was moved from place to place. And think about this, the altar was actually hollow. Thus, it was probably pretty lightweight and easy to move. And although, although the details are not quite clear, it, it appears that you, know, you had the four, hall, the four walls and an inside grate about halfway, halfway up. Now, before going into explaining what types of sacrifices were made on this altar, we really need to consider the courtyard itself. You know, the tabernacle was not a freestanding tent. It was surrounded by a fence. The bronze altar was outside the tent, but it was inside the perimeter of the fence in the middle of this courtyard. And God, again, wanted this courtyard made in a certain way. You were to make the courtyard for the tabernacle, make the hangings on the south of the courtyard of finely spun linen, 150 feet long on that side. There are to be 20 posts and 20, 20 bronze bases. The hooks and the bands of the post must be silver. Then make the hangings on the north side 150 feet long. There are to be 20 posts and 20 bronze bases. The hooks and bands of the posts must be silver. Make the hangings of the courtyard on the west side 75 feet long, including their 10 posts and 10 bases. Make the hangings of the courtyard on the east side toward the sunrise 75 feet. Make the hangings on one side of the gate 22 and a half feet, including their three posts and their three bases. And make the hangings on the other side 22 and a half feet, including their three posts and their three bases. So this fence basically marked the tabernacle's outer boundary. 75 feet by 150 feet uh, gives you a, an area of about 10,000 square feet. And if you can imagine, this is roughly the size of four tennis courts. Uh, so that gives you kind of the dimensions of what the, the courtyard would be. And the tent of meeting, the tent itself, probably took up less than a thousand square feet. So there was plenty of open space in this courtyard. And the, the fence was about, would have been eight feet tall. 
And so it permitted the Israelites from a distance to, you know, to see the very top of the tabernacle tent itself. They could see the smoke rising on the altar, but they would not have been able to see much else going into in the courtyard from a distance. And there was one wedding into the courtyard, just one entrance. And God gave instructions for that as well. The gate of the courtyard is to have a 30-foot screen embroidered with blue and purple and scarlet yarn and finely spun linen. It is to have four posts, including their four bases. All the posts around the courtyard are to be banded with silver and have silver hooks and bronze bases. The length of the courtyard is to be 150 feet, the width 75 feet at each end, and the height seven and a half feet tall, all made of finely spun linen. The bases of the posts must be bronze. All the tools of the tabernacle for every use and all its tent pegs, as well as all the tent pegs of the courtyard, are to be made of bronze. So the entrance here was made with the same cloth that adorned the inside of the tabernacle. White linen embroidered with blue and purple and scarlet thread. And you see, this established the connection between the entrance of the tabernacle or the entrance to the courtyard and what went on inside. It was the access or the gateway to the holy place where God was. You know, what, what is, I think, maybe significant about the pillars in the courtyard that we talked about, like, like the altar and its utensils, all the, the, the pillars, the base was made of bronze. You know, we talked about everything in the tabernacle being made with gold, but the courtyard itself belonged to the earth, as opposed to the, to the tabernacle or the tent of meeting, trying to establish and show that it was heaven. The courtyard is very earthy. You see, the tabernacle complex, the whole complex, was a microcosm of the universe. God at the center, ruling heaven and earth. Uh, the progressively more precious metals that surrounded his presence symbolized his grandeur. And then you have the three main sections of the tabernacle, the courtyard, the holy place, the most holy place. These are separated and you have three different kinds of worshipers at these places. If you remember when we talked about Moses going up to Mount Sinai, only Moses was allowed to go up the mountain and meet with God. He was the mediator, the man who represented the people before God. You see, the, the, the people were down at the bottom of the mountain. They were not allowed to approach. They had to stay off of God's holy mountain. Moses and the elders could go halfway up. But that's all that the elders could go with Moses. Moses was the only one that went up to the very top of the mountain to meet with God. And the tabernacle was really structured in a similar way. Only the high priest could enter into the Holy of Holies, being the mediator, the man who represented the people before God. The rest of the priests could only go halfway. They could enter the, the first chamber, the the holy place, 
but not the Holy of Holies. And the people were kept outside. They could go into the courtyard, but they were not allowed to enter the tent of meeting. Uh, and maybe there's one more group that needs to be, to be mentioned. You know, Gentiles generally were not allowed to enter at all, although they could enter if they bound themselves in faith to the God of Israel. And so the tabernacle was really set off from the camp of Israel, and Israel was set apart from the camp, from, from, from the world. Now, later on, when Solomon replaced the tabernacle with a temple in Jerusalem, there were two courtyards. You had an inner courtyard and an outer courtyard. The temple of Herod's day had four courtyards. Uh, and then in those days, only the priests were allowed to enter the innermost court. Then you had a court for the men, for the men of Israel, and beyond that, a court for women, and the outermost court was for the Gentiles. Uh, and according to Josephus, this courtyard was actually separated from the inner courts by a stone wall. And this stone wall had an inscription on it that said uh, uh, it forbade any foreigner to enter past that point under pains of death. Now, the interesting thing is not all these courtyards were with keeping of God's law. God never said anything about having a courtyard for men and a separate courtyard for women. Uh, but access to God was limited. You know, this was intended to teach the Israelites that they were separated from the holy presence of God by sin. And one of the reasons that, that uh, Jesus came was so that he could do the saving work. By his death and resurrection, remember we talked about how there was a veil between the holy place and the most holy place. And through his death and the resurrection, Jesus tore that veil and opened the way back up to God. And so now the way is open for Jews and Gentiles. And, you know, the, the Bible speaks, it says, through the death of Christ, Jesus has made both groups, Jews and Gentiles, he has made both groups one and torn down the dividing wall of hostility. And when the Bible speaks of, of a dividing wall, I mean, it could be referring explicitly to the temple wall that kept out the Gentiles. But I think Jesus came to make sure that the Gentiles could get in, not past the dividing wall, but in a spiritual, in a spiritual sense too, because scripture says there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls the name of the Lord will be saved. So apply to Jews, to Gentiles, to men, to women. You know, whenever someone says, or whenever someone tries to keep people away from God on the basis of their ethnicity, on the basis of their gender, this is not biblical Christianity. A person doesn't have to be Jewish or male to meet with God. Any sinner in need of grace can have access to God through Christ. Now, the last time I spoke, I told, I said, if you remember, 
that the tabernacle was the one place in the entire world at this time where people could enter God's presence. And in the Old Testament, the only place to gain access to God was the tabernacle and later the temple. And the first step was to walk through this entrance into the courtyard. And imagine this was always a busy place full of people, full of priests and animals. It was a place the Israelites loved to go. They wrote poetry about what it was like to be in God's courtyard. Listen to this. This is out of Psalms. When we were overwhelmed by sins, you forgave our transgressions. Blessed are those you choose and bring near to live in your courts. We are filled with the good things of your house, of your holy temple. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. They're singing praises about being in the courtyard. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper at the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. This is what they felt. This is the emotion that they felt when they walked into, entered into the courtyard there. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his holy name. These were the things that they were going through their minds. These would have been the words coming off their lips as they were headed toward the courtyard, as they were walking through, the, the, through the, that large entrance. And I think we should feel the same excitement, exuberance when we go and worship and gather together with God's people. You know, drawing near to God is a, is a blessing to our soul. Our hearts should be crying out for him, crying out to him. And when we get close to God in worship, he fills us with good things. You know, this is why even going to church, even standing in the doorway is better than anywhere else in the world. Now, as a, as a little side note, God was teaching his people here. He was teaching his people that he loved corporate worship. Individuals were not to worship him separately at their homes or in uh, mere family groups at convenient locations like the pagans did back in that time. They were to come together as an entire people, bringing their sacrifices to one place, his tabernacle. Now, there were many reasons that, that the Israelites loved to enter God's court. But the most important reason, the one that put the song in their hearts, was in the courtyard they received forgiveness. Standing in the center of that courtyard was the altar where they offered sacrifices for their sins. This was the first thing they encountered. It would be the first thing that you would see as you walked into church, for example, would be this, you know, massive seven and a half foot altar. And as soon as the Israelites entered the courtyard, they saw this flaming altar. And the first thing they did was offer sacrifices. And consider Consider what this means in having a relationship with God. You know, many people want to know God. 
And usually what they mean, I think, is they want God to bless them. They're not interested in God as much as they're interested in what he can do for them. They have a long list of questions they'd like God to answer, maybe. They've got a long list of problems that they want God to fix. They've got a long list of blessings that they want to receive. But this is not how God operates. You see, before anything else happens, something has to be done about our sin. God is holy and we're not. And until this is dealt with, there's no way to have a relationship with him. First things first, a sacrifice has to be made so that our sins can be forgiven and we can be reconciled with God. And the tabernacle was designed to show all of this. That's why the most prominent part of the structure, uh, other than the tent of meeting, was the altar. You know, you had the tent of meeting. And think about it. The tent of meeting was where God was. But between the entrance to the courtyard and that tent of meeting was the altar. The altar was a place of blood and death where the animals were slashed and burned. Okay? That's what it was. It was it was at the brazen altar that the holiness and righteousness of God was displayed. He hated sin and his justice was taking place there at the altar. And the only way to approach this righteous, holy God was through a blood sacrifice for sin. This is what God's justice requires for the wages of sin is death. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. You know, I think we'd probably rather not talk about sin, let alone talk about having to pay the price in blood. People hope to find another way to God, an easier way. Isn't there something easier? We don't have to be all messy with a sacrifice. I think we all probably want to tend to think we can reach God in one sense by climbing our own ladder of obedience. We think somehow we can make ourselves good enough for God. Or we want God to accept us just as we are without repenting of sin. We want to find a loophole somehow. We, we think there's a back door to heaven. We want to find a way around this bloody, smelly, smoky altar of sacrifice. But there is no other way. Sinners cannot come into the presence of a holy God unless there is atonement. When we see this all the way through the Bible, think about it. At every stage of salvation, God needed to bring a sacrifice for sin. Let's start at the beginning. This was true for Adam and Eve. It was true for Cain and Abel. It was true for Noah and his family. It was true for Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. It was true for Moses. I mean, at the very beginning of Exodus, before Israel could even get out of Egypt, the nation had to celebrate Passover. This meant that every household had to sacrifice a perfect lamb 
and paint its blood on the doorpost. This had to be done before Israel could go and meet with God in the wilderness. Think about it, even then. Then the people offered more sacrifices on Mount Sinai. And there Moses built an altar, offered sacrifices, and sprinkled the blood on both the altar and the people. This had to be done. Whenever God establishes a relationship with his people, atonement has to be made for sin. This is what God has always required. It's not something new. And this really forces us to ask a serious question. Has atonement been made for my sin? If a blood sacrifice is what God requires, then a blood sacrifice is what we need. And of course, that is why we need Jesus. You know, if there's any way for us to meet with God, if we are ever going to find forgiveness, then we need a sacrifice. Just like the people of Israel did. And God provided one. You know, the Bible says God presented him, Jesus, as a propitiation, a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. So if we trust in Jesus, then a sacrifice has been made for our sin. And we have a relationship with the living God. Now, to, to, to fully understand what God has done for us through Christ, it really helps to understand the sacrifices that the Israelites made on this altar. I could, we could... I could probably do a sermon on every single sacrifice, but to just cover them quickly, there were five main kinds of sacrifices. You had the burnt offering, which was a general sacrifice for sin in which the entire animal was burned on the altar. This represented not only atonement for sin, but a complete surrender, a total consecration to God. Now, get this, at least two burnt offerings were made every day in the morning and in the evening. Every day. There was also the grain offering in which part of the harvest was dedicated to God with thanksgiving for his blessings. And part of the grain offering was burned on the altar and part was given to the priests. There was the fellowship offering in which an animal was sacrificed to God and the rest was eaten by the worshiper. This symbolized reconciliation with God on the basis of atonement for sin. And finally, there was the sin offering and the guilt offering in which atonement was made for sin. And this could be either for the individual or for the nation. And this included sins that were deliberate or not. To show the price had been paid, blood from the sacrifice was sprinkled on the altar. And since blood signifies life, this sprinkling of the blood showed that an animal had died and the value of the death had been applied to the sinner. Now, put yourself in the Israelite's place. In, in the typical case, it would begin with the worshiper bringing an animal without any defect through, in, through the main entrance of the courtyard. You have raised the animal until it's fully grown, or you've 
spent money, your own hard-earned money to buy this animal. And so the animal represents a sacrifice, even in the modern sense of the world. It cost something to the worshiper. And a portion of the worshiper's own life is identified with that animal. The worshiper lays his hand on the head of the animal, signifying identification with it. He then kills the animal at the entrance to the courtyard, signifying that the animal dies as a substitute for the worshiper. And from that point on, the priest takes over in performing the sacrificial actions. The, when the priest takes over, you know, that, that indicates that a holy person must perform the rest of the actions after the death of the animal. The priest takes some of the blood and sprinkles it on the side of the bronze altar. And all of these actions, understand, they think of all the blood that had been sprinkled on the altar or on the horns. Permanent markings of that altar as testimony to the fact that the animal had died. And then God carried out his wrath against the animal instead of the worshiper. That animal died in the place of the sinner, a life for a life. And this was keeping in with God's commands. God said, the life of the creature is in the blood, and I have appointed it to you to make atonement on the altar for your lives, since it is the life blood that makes atonement. So you see, the Israelites had to make sacrifices. They, they had to sacrifice many animals on many occasions for many reasons. And obviously, I mean, no doubt, the, the bronze altar was always burning. I mean, God said the fire on the altar is to be kept burning. It must not go out. Every morning, the priest would burn wood on the fire. He has to arrange the burnt offering on the fire and burn the fat portions from the fellowship offerings. Fire must be kept burning on the altar continually. It must not go out. So the priest had a responsibility to make sure the fire was never extinguished. Uh, A.W. Pink had this to say. There it stood, ever smoking, ever bloodstained, ever open to any guilty Hebrew who wished to approach it. So the altar being always burning meant it was always ready to accept a sacrifice. The sinner, having forfeited his life by sin, another life, an innocent life, must be given in his place. Something that God considers a substitute must die in the place of the sinner so that the sinner may live. You see, this was a powerful, powerful witness to the peoples, to Israel's depravity. The altar was always ready to receive another sacrifice. And just imagine how many Sacrifices must have been made on this altar. At least two burnt offerings were sacrificed every day from the time that Moses built that altar all the way to the time of Solomon. <clears throat> two sacrifices every day, at least. Fellowship offerings were made whenever the people were grateful to God. And then you had all of the sin offerings and guilt offerings. Just think of all the bulls and goats and lambs and pigeons that must have been required 
to atone for the sins of a million people. Then imagine that that continuing, that those sacrifices continue day and day and day and day. And you know what? It wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. The people were always committing more sins. There were always more sacrifices to make. It was a messy, bloody business. And if we think that they got bored with all those sacrifices, what about God? I mean, imagine how many sacrifices he must have seen on Israel's altar. And I think this is exactly the point. The Old Testament sacrifices were intended to overwhelm the people. The people could keep on offering these sacrifices forever, but it still didn't deal with the problem of their sin. Hebrews says it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. And so what the people needed was a perfect sacrifice, one that does away with sin once and for all. And of course, this is what Jesus offered on the cross. I love the songs that we sang this morning. Mm -hmm. one, one perfect sacrifice to atone for sin forever. Jesus did not make his sacrifice on a bronze altar at the tabernacle. He did it by suffering and dying on the cross, shedding his own blood, the very blood of God. And when he did this, he was making atonement for our sins. He was serving as our substitute, dying in our place so that we could have forgiveness and come to a right relationship with God. Hebrews goes on to say this, for Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, not the tabernacle, but into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So when we approach God today, we don't approach past an altar. We come by way of the cross. Really, Jesus is the only altar we need. He is the atoning sacrifice. His blood paid the price for our sin. Uh, John Owen had this to say. He said, the altar which we now have is Christ alone and his sacrifice. For he was both priest, altar, and sacrifice all in himself. So we come to God through Jesus Christ. And through the cross where he died. And when we put our trust in him. Then we have an atoning sacrifice. And our sins are forgiven. And no more sacrifice for sin is needed. Isn't that amazing? No, no more is needed. Now when sins have been forgiven. Again out of Hebrews. When sins have been forgiven. There is no need to offer any more sacrifice. You know, there is one sacrifice that we can make 
and that's to offer ourselves in service to God. Jesus, now that he's paid the price for our sin, God no longer commands <clears throat> us to bring a sacrifice to the altar, but he does want us to become he says, present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. This is the sacrifice that we make, not on a bloody altar made of bronze, but the sacrifice that we make is on the altar of our own hearts and minds as we commit ourselves to God. And that's the sacrifice that he calls us to today. Let's pray. Lord, Father, the, the sacrifice of bulls and goats didn't provide a permanent sacrifice, but Christ does. Thank you, Father, that you made yourself known to us in Christ. Thank you for the sacrifice that you yourself established for the ultimate perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ for our sins. Thank you that your judgment was poured out on Christ instead of us, that he served as our substitute so that we could have fellowship with him. Father, help us to realize what a great thing you have done for us May it bring delight to our hearts, just as it was a delight for Israel to be in your courtyard. May it be a delight to us from now until eternity. We give you thanks. We praise your holy name.